It's another episode of Ophelia Talks. How are you? How's your Friday evening going? It's probably Saturday by the time you listen to this. I thought, and this will reflect in the episode, that I wasn't going to be able to get this one up in time. But you know what? We're better than Amateur Hour. We can do this. We can keep a consistent schedule. So here we are. Friday evening, you, me, and Ophelia Talks. Who am I? Why, it's me. You remember me, don't you? It's Zach Rich, your podcast host, your company manager, your incredibly sore boy. Oh my gosh. I started doing that whole uh, self-care thing again. Going to the gym, lifting the heavy things, putting the heavy things down. My God. I don't know how people do it day in and day out, but I suppose I'll give it a go. This is a really lovely episode. I have coming back for the second time as a guest, Billy Aiken Tires, the director of Liz Estrada Jones. We're halfway through our rehearsal time. We open in three weeks, so I figure now is a good time to just chill with a cup of coffee, relax, and talk about life and the way it is. It's a really cool episode. I hope you enjoy it for yourselves. Feeding Green is the band you're about to hear in just a couple of moments, and if you like what you hear and you're interested in this show, tickets for Lysistrata Jones are available at ophelia.theater.org. Just follow the links from there. We open three weeks from today. I am terribly excited. I gotta go off to rehearsal, but I'm gonna leave you with the show. We got a little bonus treat for you next week, so stick around. Pay attention to the feed. I'll be with you sooner than you think. For now, the episode is here. Enjoy. static wilkin chairs today we're on a couch bouncing the microphone on my high school yearbook i hope that's not going to affect the sound is it no it won't affect it at all in fact it actually sounds pretty nice at the moment Mm -hmm. i think the cars will be able to be heard easier because we're closer to the window but i think avid listeners of ophelia talks are used to a little bit of traffic outside now oh for sure i've been listening to a lot of oprah and uh it made me laugh the other day that she had like an airplane going overhead during her podcast and i was like it happens to the best of us wait oprah has a podcast do you not know this? No. Super Soul podcast. Oprah's Super Soul podcast. Is it, it an will, interview podcast? It's an interview podcast. It will change your life. I straight up was like sobbing on the train yesterday. Interesting. Sobbing on the train. Did you watch... Oh no, we watched it together because you were watching it with me, but you saw her speech at the Golden Globes. Oh. I think you and I both were just in woman. tears the entire time. Well, that's why I went and got this today. So I listened to her Super Soul podcast with Cheryl Strayed. Mm-hmm. And I love Cheryl Strait. She's an amazing author. But this is the book that Oprah buys everyone in her uh, What's family. the title of that book? It's called Brave Enough by Cheryl Strait. Um, and it's a collection of quotes and um, sayings by Cheryl Strait from her book Wild and from Tiny Beautiful Things and all of the wonderful things that she's written over the years, the essays. Uh, and it's it will change your life. Why do I think quotes are so powerful? I mean, I use them a lot when I'm directing because I think that they're so powerful because they're a concise phrase that 
can put together a thought or a feeling that somebody just sometimes needs to hear. And like, I can't even count the amount of times when someone has been going through something and I will send them a quote because actually the way that that quote can say it is way better than how I can put it into words. And I, I think it's so funny that when you're working in like a creative environment like we do, that sometimes quotes can be born from just what you're saying and then people will literally write it down and quote you and be like that, that really resonated what you said with me today and it was like oh it's just words coming out of my mouth is there a quote from the book so far that's really hit you at your core you just bought this today right yeah well there's a couple in here that like this is the one that really gets me and this has been like saying with me a lot be brave enough to break your own heart which i think is an incredibly powerful statement but um one that she talks about a lot, which is like something that her mother always used to say to her, is uh, put yourself in the way of beauty. Um, I try to do that. I try to live my life by that. I think that that's put yourself in the way of beauty in, in, in the many ways that beauty can manifest in the world. I think that's evident. So we're halfway through the process. Yeah. We got three weeks till opening oh as gosh, of this yeah. recording. The episode's a day late because we can never find the time to sit down there is no time to i feel like this is the first time you and i have gotten to hang out and have coffee in forever oh well, yeah because we spend all of our time at the space just working on the show <laughs> we are there constantly oi how's your heart where do are you, you know, at do you know what my heart is really good it's full right it's very full and it's very good where's your head at right now it's busy there's a lot going on yeah there's a lot going on and i think that it's really important when there's, I mean, we've just, it's not just the Sistrata, it's everything. It's actually really refreshing to be able to come into the room and see good work happening and seeing good people working together well and doing the thing that we're all supposed to be doing and seeing it work and be like, oh, I'm in the right place at the right time. I haven't been in a room in a long time where the energy's just bombastic and everyone's feeding off of each other very well. And we've... I, I just, at this point we haven't even really delved into much character stuff yet. It's been mechanics mm-hmm. and world building and choreography and music, and yeah. we haven't even nailed down the roles yet. But the actors seem to be playing off of each other in this really wonderful way, mm-hmm. just personally in an yeah. inter- interpersonal kind of fashion. I think it's been good for me as well to see that the, there is a method to my madness, and that I do put a lot of stock in casting, and I do put a lot of stock in making sure that the right combination of energies is in the room. And I really stick by the thought process that if you put the right people in the room and if they are innately good, good work will happen. There's very little drama in my room. I try to live by that and when I see it, I squash it out. And I think that it's, of, of the three big shows that I've directed in the last year, I would say that is true for all of them. They're all very different and I think that Alice is obviously a lot more of an emotional project and can weigh a lot more heavy on the heart, but in the same way, it's all good people. Very so much I think so. that, it, that and Red Winter, we had an amazing process full of good creative work because everyone was innately open-minded and open-hearted, open-hearted, which was good. I know your process a lot from working with you on Alice. Yeah. So how do you change the way you approach a show going from something at its baseline, an emotional, quiet piece like Alice, not even quiet, but mm-hmm. just refined and pulled back and not as bombastic and loud as yeah. something like Lysistrata Jones. How do you change your approach to a show when it's in many ways, not the antithesis, but two very different shows? Mm-hmm. How do you change the way you see a show like That's that? Act- it's been a really good life lesson for me in terms of the way I work because I was very worried coming into that. I was like coming into this uh, with that mindset. Is what I, that I do that makes me a unique director translatable? 
can it be moved around and changed? And I think what I've realised is that there are obviously things that we did in the room for Alice that are not useful for this and vice versa, but at its core, if you can break people down to be a baseline human being and to be open and to be receptive and not to be afraid, then you will always get the best work out of them because we're dealing and telling human stories. We're dealing in connection. And at its baseline, if you can get everyone there through the things that, or through the exercises that we do, through the way we approach the text, if you can do that, then you will always get good work out of them. Just to give the audience an idea, what kind of exercises do you take your actors through? Usually I begin with ensemble work uh, and trying to get people to work uh, as a team, as a, as a unit. I think that there is something to the idea of uh, working as a pack. I always use the, the idea of the, the wolf pack. I think that there's definitely something to that. There's something about having your heart beat at the same time as somebody else's that will connect you forever. And that's so unique in, in what we do as our jobs. We are gypsies. We travel around. We're constantly being thrown together with a group of people and then being expected to know their deepest, darkest secrets. And then you leave and you never see them again. But when you do see those people, you do have those deep connections with them. You can see them. And so much of the work that I'm, I try to get the actors to do is to see each other. And that can be through a very different... I do a lot of Laban work. We do a lot of viewpoints work. We do a lot, a lot of... Um, tension work uh figuring out where your weight is distributed in your body playing games is a big thing like i think that playing games and doing things like relays and creating a sense of competition in the, the room relay races <laughs> are like the bread and butter of some of the routines sometimes so because like not only is it a fun thing to do but it builds the community and i think there's even like a rivalry going on amongst our cast every time the the yeah. re lace is brought up. Because that dubstep music starts and something <laughs> is set alight in the in the, the teams that makes them want to win. And they forget about all of the other bullshit that goes on in their lives. For five minutes, they get to just run and touch a book and run back. And ultimately, like I feel like as artists, we are always trying to get back to that kid in the sandbox. And the easiest way to get there is to throw them into the sandbox and say, you can play. That's okay. It's so fascinating you use the word sandbox because when I think of working with you, I think that's literally what you do is you turn a theater space into a sandbox. It's like, here's the tools to build your castle and then you can kick the castle yeah. over. Whatever you want to do in this space, you are welcome to do it. And I think that's one of the most enticing things about working mm -hmm. with you as a director. No. No, I try to like make a safe room and make a place where you can be yourself and create because it's really, there's no point in, in creating a space that doesn't feel safe that's it's never gonna make something interesting it's always gonna feel reserved and and i feel like i'm always magnetized to the people who are so themselves in all of their self all of their bad colors all of their good colors those are the interesting people so i try to get people to that place it's interesting working with musical theater people as opposed to working with actors how much is your experience with musical theater i was wondering about that well i mean i was a musical theater baby like okay. I, I was a stage drum baby and like i dance sang all my life like jazz hands um and then i was yeah i was in musicals from from the age of like eight constantly but this is your first time directing this one. is my first time directing a musical and it's interesting because i think when i went to i went to a very unique college in england where these two incredible female artists uh jenny lingham and, and maggie etheridge they were actors at the cockpit in london which was a big theater and education place and when that closed down in the 80s, they, they both ended up moving up north through different circumstances. And uh, they started this drama course that 
really changed my life and has changed so many different people's lives. But what's so interesting about it is it's kind of like a pre-drama school course. I went to drama school knowing a lot of the things that I already knew because of Jenny and Maggie. And Jenny places, she has a very specific aesthetic. She likes in the round with sticks. If you can build a story in the round with sticks, then you're golden. And our first unit of work was um, find your favorite fairy tale for when you were a child and tell me the story. Hmm. Start from nothing. What and was the story you chose? We did Rapunzel. Okay. Uh, but there were some really interesting ones I remember from that year group. And then, and then every year you're given a text. Our text was Arabian Nights. And it's essentially, there's no stage directions, you make it. And then we would go into schools, we'd roll out the mat, and we'd do it for kids. Oh, wow. And then by the end of the first year, we started to move into Brecht, and uh, we, we, we did Marat Saad for our graduation piece. It's like a bunch of 17-year-olds running around doing Marat Saad. It was insane. <laughs> My dad was very concerned that we were being taught by communists. <laughs> he was like, the socialism that you're going through did you, is outrageous. <laughs> did you hear uh, Matt <clears throat> Summers, who plays Xander? Yeah. Uh, Sean told me this story, but apparently he was going through airport security the other day, and they looked through his bag, and they found a copy of the Communist Manifesto in his bag. <laughs> <laughs> and the TSA agent just kind of looked at Matt and said, you're a weird kid. <laughs> you're an odd one. But I mean, that was, so I was very musical theatre and then thrown into this very uh, devised physical style of work. And if you were to take a Jenny Lingham class, you'd be like, oh, she's all over Billy. Like she is, my techniques are drenched in Jenny Lingham. And it's so interesting because one of the first workshops of Alice we did, we actually did in Newcastle while I was home. And I had maybe 20 actors, uh, some from my year from Durham New College, some from other years, some that I'd even gone back and taught. So there was many generations of Durham New College kids. And Lauren was there, who's uh, the March Hare in Alice, and she said, did you all have the same teacher? And I was like, yeah, we were all taught by Jenny. And she was like, you guys have an innate vocabulary that is just unspoken. You know how to be on stage with each other. Mm. And it is fascinating to watch. So I owe a lot to that lady. <clears throat> but it's interesting because directing a musical is just so different i think that there is a stigma attached to musical theater that it's not real that it it can be surface level but we both know that that is quite incorrect yeah i think about that a lot too because having studied musical theater myself in college i always thought about how i think the thing that is different between rehearsing a musical and rehearsing a play is that musicals are much more segmented in its work simply because it's Scene, dance, song, scene, mm -hmm. song, dance. Going through all these motions, everything feels rigid. And when I've talked to book writers and people that have written musicals before, and they're always like, oh, the book is there to make sure that you can get to the next song. Because yeah. that, that is all anyone ever cares about is the next song. Yeah. But some of the best musicals you have out there, I mean, some of my personal favorite musicals. We did Floyd Collins here at Ophelia yeah. a couple of years ago. And that's very much a musical where the not only do the songs exist to tell the story, but the book is there not just to get to the next song but to help tell the story whereas a lot of your older musicals your uh Rogers and Sondheims a lot of Rogers and Hammerstein and Sondheim I know Jesus exactly Christ. what you were going for I said it and I couldn't think I was like <laughs> I why am I how wrong am I here I'm very wrong uh all of those very much exist to drive yourself to the next music because the American musical was originally all about just getting to the music again the chart toppers mm -hmm. and then it more or less evolved, not as an art form, but just mm -hmm. to tell a more cohesive and concise mm -hmm. and considerate story. But even then, though, I would I would counter-argue that and say that all of the Rodgers and Hammersteins are incredibly challenging. When you actually look at their subject matter, South Pacific, there's 
it's very strong undertone of racism in that. Yes. Sound of Music, The King and I, Carousel is about a, a physical abuse. Yeah, yeah. There are some really dark undertones in those stories. And I think even Oklahoma, when you look at the character of Judd, and I think that what's really cool that's happening right now and is that we're starting to look at those classics and turning them on their head. I think one of the smartest productions of Oklahoma is the Trevor Nunn production, um, and where he made Judd the focus. Yes. Which is very interesting. I, these stories, are, and having done those shows, having played Maria in The Sound of Music, there is so much in that character and in that book. I mean, we all know the songs, but there is a well of truth in that character. And same with Oklahoma. I was Laurie in Oklahoma. There's a well of truth. It's it's baseline human emotion. And what's special about musical theatre is that, I mean, you, you hear it all the time in, in theatre classes, but, I mean, musicals, why do we do them? Uh, why do you sing from nowhere? Because the emotion is so high and so heightened that you can't continue to do anything else, so you have to sing. It's a very heightened expression. In the same way, Shakespeare is a style. But Shakespeare can still speak to the human condition. You can take kids who've never seen Shakespeare before to the theatre and they will know. If you show any teenager Romeo and Juliet, I dare them not to be moved by it. Oh, absolutely. And they will always understand it. I mean, it's a reason why it's one of the shows we teach in high schools these Mm -hmm. days. I think that um, when we're... And this is something we've definitely talked about with the actors. Yes, it is heightened. Yes, it is a comedy. But the beauty of humanity is that we can be all things. We can be clowns. We can be hurt. We can be moved. We can be all of those things. You can be a complete person and also be a clown. That's one of the interesting things I've been watching throughout this process is taking this ginormous satire and comedy of Lysistrata Jones and trying to bring it down to a much more grounded feeling. Moving these characters past the jock stereotype, Mm -hmm. the nerd stereotype, how are you propelling your actors to bring these characters back to a more grounded level? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that all starts starts in the warm-up. It starts at self. And um, we did an exercise the other day in rehearsals where we talked, where I talked about, um, I can guarantee that you have all felt ostracized or have all felt like you didn't fit or you didn't belong or who you are as a person is not valuable enough. Actually, speaking of, I actually just sent a picture to Chloe of this quote from... Uh, this book, which was very interesting. Chloe, who was playing Lysistrata. Yes. I was, I read it and I was, again, like you find things and you're like, oh my gosh. Oh, where is it? I've got to find it now. <laughs> oh, here we go. My advice to my adolescent self. You know who you are, so let yourself be here now. It's okay to be smart and ambitious and curious and not terribly cool. Don't waste all of those years trying to get the boys you want and the girls to like, the, the, the boys to want you and the girls to like you. Don't starve yourself skinny. Don't be a pretty cheerleader. Don't lose your virginity to the captain of the football team. Don't lose anything to him. Be the captain. You are the captain. Take the ball and run. That's very much the show in a nutshell. Really, truly, yes. I sent that to Chloe and I was like, this. Yeah. <laughs> this quote. And I think that that's, I mean, what? why do we stereotype ourselves? Because it is safe. Because it is easier to let yourself be drawn to the things that you recognize in yourself and others. People like labels. People like labels because it tells them that they belong. It sums things up in a very easy to comprehend way. Yeah. And I think everybody can identify with that. But then I think about me as a, as a teenager and my lifelong best friend was of a completely different clique to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that what was special about me and Abby, Abby was very popular and I was very not. Um, and I think that what was very 
interesting about us is that there is no way on God's green that we would have been friends in any world. We probably would never have spoken had theatre not have been the connecting thread. And she has been my lifelong best friend because she saw me. And that's more precious to me than anything in the world. She saw me and I saw her, even though we were completely different. And I think that that happens a lot in this show. So a lot of it is trying to get the actors to strip back a little bit and say, okay, who was I in school? I was the jock. I was the nerd. I was this person. I was that person. Okay, now let's look at all of the other colours that you have in your life. Let's look at all of the other things that you are. We can assume that these characters, although are stereotypes who can be considered labelled, have many colours and are not always right and are not always wrong and are going to do things. Lissa Strato is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. She is flawed. People are flawed. So what makes going to the theatre interesting. We are seeing flawed human beings trying to get through this terrifying thing that is life. So a lot of my job as, as a director is trying to get the actors to make that personal connection. A great example is Sean, who's playing Mick. I think he is really going through it right now. I think he's really starting to see the, the similarities and the differences with Mick and and how to make that person a whole person. Yeah. It's a really interesting process to watch. It's fascinating. I, I You were talking about just like how you and your friend are like yin and yang. That's very much my relationship with Sean. Because he and I knew each other for years before we actually became friends. I met him just as I had gotten to college. He was a year ahead of yeah. me. And we ran in the same circles, but there was just nothing about the two of us that clicked. We were both just into musical theater and knew all the same people, but we had literally nothing in common. And I think the moment we actually became best friends was he was actually going through a really difficult breakup uh, about two and a half years mm-hmm. into us knowing each other. And he's a lot of his friends were just tied to that relationship and I was just kind of like sitting next to him one day and I just said you want to talk about it and this cascade of just discussing and feeling for each other he and I are two completely different human beings in so many ways but we also just meet in the middle either longing to like like the things that each other likes or just being there for somebody when they need mm-hmm. a heart to rely on. And seeing him go through this process just kind of reminded me, because Sean's been on a boat for the last year. He's been out of my life because he's been touring the world and doing shows and this thing and that thing and the other thing. And the second he gets back, he gets cast in the show. We're working together again. It's the first time we've been in a room for four years. We haven't worked on a show together. And just getting to see him work again reminds you just how deeply and passionately you can care about another human being, even when you usually don't have anything in common. When every single one of our yeah. conversations is, I like this movie, I hate that movie, and we argue about it for seven hours. Yeah. It's, well, it's, I think you guys, and I think that that's evident from watching you guys in the room with each other, you see each other. Yeah. I, I really am a strong believer that you have many soulmates, and it doesn't have to be romantic. Abby is my soulmate. And we've always talked about how, regardless of our romantic relationships, that is an unshakable point. We will always be... Like, I, she was in a long-term relationship for a long time, and, and she was like, Billy's my soulmate. And she had a big argument with her <laughs> boyfriend about it. And he was like, I don't understand that. And she's like, well, she's my soulmate. That's who I'm with. That's my person. I think you have many, and you have many in different colours and different levels and variations, but I do think that, like, you can see when someone sees someone. You have more than one soulmate in your life. Like, obviously, that makes sense when you see it that way. When I think of Sean... He's somebody that's going to be tethered to me for the rest of my life. When I think about you, even, you're going to be tethered to me for the rest of my life. You have changed my life in so many different ways, and we're going to be 
changing each other mm-hmm. probably for a long time to come. I don't know how this podcast turns into me gushing about you. <laughs> I genuinely do not know how that happens every single week. It's I don't good. like you. I love you. <laughs> I don't like well, you. Well, I think that like you, in the nature of what we do, we are opening... One of the things I talk about, when I've been spending a lot of time as we gear up to Alice again, figuring out why I wrote the play and figuring out what I'm trying to say and what the play did for me and I think and what I want to do this time that I didn't do last time. And I think what became apparent to me last time was maybe, maybe I wasn't in the best emotional place, but I think that that happened because I knew that to get out of the actors what I needed to get out of you guys... I had to open my heart a little bit and I had to show you a part of myself that I wasn't necessarily comfortable in showing you guys. And that comes with an immense amount of fear, an immense amount of anxiety. And I think now I've done it once and I've gone, hey, here's all the ugly colours and look what beauty came from it. I feel a little bit less stressed about doing that. And But it's part of what we do. We have to open our hearts a little bit and let people see us. And that's baseline where you start with actors and once you do it for yourself then you can start to pinpoint it in other people and help them figure it out for themselves now not everyone is going to want to do that then that's fine yeah you're just not the person i collaborate with but i'm getting better at seeing the people who are able to do that i think that's evident just based on the way you've been building your casts throughout the shows that you're doing even the people you're bringing in for this next production of alice you can see that they're ready to play ball and open their hearts and show everything that's going on i think the people you're bringing in for this next run are fantastic Mm -hmm. like i cannot wait to see what you're doing next with the show Mm -hmm. uh purpose is so hard right yeah oh it is just wandering around for it even even speaking so i've been thinking a lot about even this podcast And I went back and I listened to some of the older episodes. I listened to the Sarah episode and some of the episodes we did for With a Twist. And I was wondering, why do I have these people on this show? And originally it was to promote the work and promote uh, what we're trying to... We're trying to hawk our wares here, obviously. We want people to listen to the show because we want them to come see Liz Estrada. But I think even more than that, I've been thinking about every time I mention somebody else... All I can do is start gushing about them. Mm-hmm. I gush about the people that come onto the show. I want to share the people that come onto the show with the world. I want everyone to know you and yeah. me and Chloe and Sean and everybody else that comes to this room. I want people to come and see this show, not just because it's going to be a wonderful theatrical experience, but to see these people on this stage working their asses off to feel something for themselves and to let others feel yeah. a thing. It's so important to me. It's... I was at the Natural History Museum with a guy in 94 the other day and they did this exhibit about um, senses and how touch and taste and uh, how once they're all together, like what, what they can create. But the scientists started talking about imagination and the human brain is so mathematical in the way that it's lined up, but nobody can really explain imagination. No. And yet from imagination is born art, is born music, architecture. The most incredible things about humanity are born from imagination. That's so amazing. And to try and unpack that is what we do. We try to unpack the human imagination and sensibility. And and it's very, I mean, it's so loaded. I've been thinking about it a lot recently, just in the way I do business as an artist. Like, who do I want to be as a creator and as an artist? And And like, who do we want to be as a company? What do we want to say about the world? 
and that's a big thing for me and actually funnily enough like roundabouts said it at the um i spoke at the american academy's graduation last year uh and the graduating class were a lot of the people who are now in alice and nobody listened i get that and nobody listened to me of course because you don't listen at your graduation but one of the things that i said which is something that i wish i'd have known when i graduated was that it's an Anne bogart quote but it's something like the artist and the person are not separate they are one they are one and they cannot exist without each other I think that's the mistake I made as a young artist thinking that it had to be all about the work and it's about the art and I'm an artist and emotionally wanking all over myself. Sure. Whereas actually the second that you take a step, the second you take a step back and, and say, I'm a human first, I'm a person, I am a flawed person. I have all of these different colors that make me me. How can I use that to be a better artist and vice versa? it started to make such a huge difference in my life. And I became happier. And it made it about others as well. It made it more about others. I think like the more you can give to others, the kindness will come back tenfold. That's something that I try to generally live by. If you're gonna show up, if you show up for other people, they will show up for you. Always. I haven't had an experience where they haven't shown up. And if they don't, then they're not worth their salt. But that's also maybe not their problem. Maybe they're in a different point in their life and they're not ready to show up for you. But people will always come back. People will always come back to you and give you what you give out. And I think that's so important when you're making art and when you're when you're a part of a theatre company. And I think that one of the great things about this podcast and all of the wonderful things that we do at Ophelia is that there is a great sense that we all love what we do. Yeah. We love that. And I think that's one of the things that keeps people around. Yeah. Because I think when you're a young artist, you're looking to find your tribe. And sometimes your tribe is not where you expect it to be. And when you find those people, you stick to them. Now, that doesn't mean that you get complacent. You've got to still fight. You've got to still try to better yourself. But if you're able to take the hands of the people around you and say, I'm going to be better, come with me. Come and be better with me. On the most part, people will follow you. That's what Sarah did. Yeah. I'm going to New York, come with me. And people said yes. People took the leap. I think about that a lot. Just how many people Sarah Bennett, our executive director, just brought, what, 21 people over to start building this dream with her. Yeah. And the people that she roped in, you and me and everyone else that's here doing this today, the amount of hours, the amount of work that we're putting in, we're at this precipice of wanting to become something even greater than the sum of our parts. Mm -hmm. And we're making it work. You dress for the job you want. And in the same vein, when I said to Sarah, this is what, this is what is happening with Alice. She went, yeah, I'll take your hand. I'll go with you. And that's like been a big one of the biggest lessons that I've learned as the artistic director this year is that I am captaining the ship and it's sailing uncharted waters. If you want to be a part of my crew, by all means, scrub the deck. If you don't, get off the boat. Get off the boat before we leave the port because we don't want anybody on that crew mutinying because that is never going to result in where we're going. It's never going to result in anything positive. Get out now while you can. But on the most part, everybody has been like, yes. Yeah. Say yes. You've got to say yes. It ain't Never no booze gonna, cruise. Yeah. It ain't no booze cruise. <laughs> we ain't going around the Hudson and coming back. Nah. We're off. We're going to Timbuktu. <laughs> Stay on the boat. Can you we point might to, run out of food. Can you point to Timbuktu on a map? <laughs> oh <my God>. Honestly. <laughs> We're going to be yeah. sailing around in circles for hours. Yes. Did we notice the captain of the ship can't read a map? <laughs> I believe the blue part is land. Took a turn. <laughs> Who yeah. knew we were all going to die out here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's how I feel every day. <laughs> but, I mean, you've got you to take chances in your life. You've got to show up and say yes. you got to show up and say yes. Did I have a little whiteboard pen and I write it on my mirror. Show up. 
I say yes. You won't get that. That is a song from Robin Hood. That's been, that's been stuck in my head. <laughs> Since the fundraiser that we did. Oh, boy. That got extremely introspective. I know. Ugh. Any other questions? Ask me more questions. questions. You, ask, you ask really good questions, I will say that. Oh, You man. should really listen to the Oprah podcast. I mean, she asks way more in, like, she asks, like, triggering questions. She'll be like, who is God to you? And you're like, <laughs> who is God to me? I don't know. What do you want people to say when you leave this earth? And I'm like, what would people say? I don't know. <laughs> I think about that. There's a song uh, by a band called Bomb the Music Industry called Planning My Death. Uh, that I think about all the time because the refrain to it is I've been planning my death because I want to have a really good death I want heroism mystery and courage yeah like how better of a way to go out did you ever see there was a Will Ferrell movie called Stranger Than Fiction mm -hmm. uh, which is all about uh, Will Ferrell's character is just an ordinary man living an ordinary life and suddenly he starts hearing narration which I believe is Emma Thompson's voice oh yeah uh, narrating a story uh, where she keeps saying, unfortunately for him, he dies at the end of this book. And he starts flipping out because he knows death <laughs> is coming, but he doesn't know how to get there. And it's just like this introspective life of like, w can you avoid your own death? Can you, what do you do with your last days that on That sounds Earth? brilliant. I actually it's, do need to It's watch that. one of his best films. Oh, like, I love that. when Will Ferrell shows up and does a serious job, that and, um, oh, what's the movie? Everything Must Go. Those are two really good dramatic, still comedic, but very great movies well i mean it's 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 the it's the old adage that comedians are usually quite depressive or in, in, in inverted but but i think that there's something to that there's something to the clown there is an innate sadness about the clown and i find a lot of comedians are really wonderful dramatic actors do you know mike birbiglia know the name i'm giving you some more homework because okay, i don't think you've played stanley parable yet i have not Honestly, <laughs> if you can find me an hour in the day, I will. 11... Mike will be... No, 11.30pm I... tonight. <laughs> you will hop on your laptop, Missy. It'll be post-rehearsal. You will brew yourself a cup of tea. And I will You'll play. sit down with No, Stanley. I will. I will get to it. It's on my countertop and I'm like, I must play this game. And after I listened to the Jason Hurtado podcast, I was like, damn it, I do need to play <laughs> You got me. You got me good. Uh, no, but Mike Birbiglia is a stand-up comic who did... He's, he's done three specials and two movies. The specials are called Sleep Off With Me, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, and Thank God for Jokes. Mm -hmm. And his style is more about telling a short story rather than a stand-up act and he weaves in and out of the story and tells jokes and then more story and jokes uh it's a master class in in storytelling and just the nature of humor and comedy thank god for jokes especially i got to see live when he did it off broadway mm -hmm. and it changed my perspective of why we laugh and how we find humor and everything and he's one of the funniest men i have ever seen in all of my life but his work is always so nuanced and introspective and sometimes sad really like yeah really digs into the core of why we do the things that well, we do we are we are we are fragile beings mm -hmm. if you will and mm -hmm. i think that like the there is a great sense that the clown is the clown is a sad being and that's definitely something that i've learned from, from doing comedia and all of those different things i think that i mean level one of clowning is the clown always says yes but the clown from that can be born immense sadness and pain and and joy and it, the clown is such a complete being because it can only say yes and i think that that's why it's one of the reasons that i love doug's writing so much i think that his right doug is one of the funniest people i know I, he is wicked smart but there is always so much heart in his writing and you see it in fairy cakes the the scene that he that geppetto had when he realized that he was gay fun fact about mm -hmm. fairy cakes like 
that scene always got me so much because we've been on such a ride and it was comedy, 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 comedy. And then this scene happens where he's like, I just want to be loved. And I think at the core, that's what we all want. We all want to be loved and accepted. And I think Doug does that so well. Even in Lissa Strada. Even in Lissa Strada. I, we, we just ran through when she smiles for the first time in rehearsal the other day. Yeah. And just the placement of that song with that character. With, with Mick. It's too good. It's genius. It's really, really smart. And one of the things that I think is the trick with um with with Doug's writing is that you need wicked smart actors. You need wicked smart actors. Because if you don't have wicked smart actors, it can become generic. But his characters are so nuanced that you just need intelligent people coming at them. And then I think about all of the actors that I've worked with on all of the different Doug shows, and I'm like, yeah, they're all genius actors, comedians with an innate sensibility of human nature but uh, and i think as well it's just it's so interesting seeing i love seeing musical theater actors do my directing like the things that we it's did. a like, shell shock I, if i had like left my musical theater program and immediately did one of your shows i would have mm-hmm. i would not have a head anymore i would yeah. have two separate entities my body and my head and yeah. neither of them would see eye tie anymore and it's interesting seeing like uh, chloe some people just get it like chloe as an open-hearted human, just get it. And then you see other people being a little bit like, absolutely fucking not. <laughs> like, yeah. No way am I showing this woman my heart. <laughs> and then you have people who go for it, gung-ho, 100%, and are like, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to figure it out, and fall in love with it. It's really... I mean, I talk about Britney a lot when I talk about Alice, but... Uh, Britney Moss. Yeah, Britney Moss. She came from a musical theatre background and is a wonderful series actress and a wonderful Shakespearean actress and all of those things and has a very open heart but is someone who had an affinity for the work. She had an affinity for that style of movement work. It spoke to her in a way that it didn't necessarily speak to everybody. Everybody did it and did it very well, but it spoke to her. And sometimes you just, in the way that I think that it, this work speaks to Sean, I think that it, I saw a little bit of a soul the other day. There you are, I see you. And now I've seen you, you can't hide it anymore. You gotta let me in. It's out forever. <laughs> Give me your heart. That's really, that's really all you do is just yeah. collect everyone's heart. You're like a. Yeah. I'm honestly, a, I'm a witch. I'm a witch. Yeah, I'm, I'm more hearts. or less. I'm like it's all a fa- like it's all a facade. I'm just creating theater so that I can rob artists of their hearts and eat them so I'll stay young forever. Well, I'm actually, three hundred and seventy-four. If I can feed your machine, I guess that's good enough for me. <laughs> I love talking to you. I love talking to you. Thanks for being the first repeat guest. Oh, I know. Yeah, you're the two for now. What an honor. What an honor. I think I've been on three. You've been on... You've been on three. I've been on three. That's right. Well, you weren't... You were a co-host in that second episode. I was a co-host, yeah. God, I talk a lot of shit, don't I? You do. (laughs) You're very rude. Every time the mic is on, everyone's very nice to each other, but we turn the mics off and I'm just like, you know, I don't care for Jason. (laughs) What a whore. <laughs> I love all my actors equally, but... Meh. It's been a wonderful first musical. I'm very, very lucky. I'm glad to be on the ride. Uh, is there anything else you want to add? Anything you want to promote? Um, Just all things Ophelia and beyond, I guess. Um, please, please, please come and see Lissa Stratagens. We open March 16th. Um, we run through April 8th. And then after that, Alice will be going to BAM. Woo-woo! And we do BAM um, May 21st through the 27th. Yeah. And then, They'll hear all that stuff. Yeah. It's in the show notes. Yeah, and then we go to Edinburgh. Ugh. For, yeah, so it's going to be... What a crazy be time. A kooky little year. 
Um, and we'll just go from there. Yeah. See, see Who knows the what brings. the fall brings. Oh, and I'm going to Scranton Shakes this year as well. I'm going to oh, Scranton. what are you I doing there? So I'm playing Rosemary in How to Succeed. Gorsh. Which is so exciting. Yeah. And then I'm playing Rusty in Footloose. Uh, oh, dang. You've is, got like a, a summer yeah, idea. And then I'm going to be working on in the Sycorax show, which is a new play uh, by Brenna Gaffers, which is very exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it's it's very it's nice to be able to finally talk about it because I wasn't allowed to talk about it for so long, and now I'm like, oh, I can tell that people. NDA is off the table. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm proud of you. I'm so happy for all your successes, yeah. all the successes to come. Please don't forget about me when you're like Sorry, you? a name. Yeah, I, <laughs> too late. Host of the show. <laughs> I did a podcast once with this boy. He was fine can't be bothered to remember him she's already on her phone she's checked out uh lissa jones runs this march 16th for four weeks tickets are available at ophelia.org you're just cute as a button ain't you i love you <laughs> my name is zach rich for billy aiken tires this has been ophelia talks <laughs>